Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The final author feature in the 2012 LitFest reading series was Robin Black. At Lighthouse on June 13, 2012, Robin read from her debut book, If I Loved You, I Would Tell You This, as well as from her current writing project. Welcome to LitFest. I'm Emily Sinclair. I'm a student at Lighthouse. I'm a board member. I am honored to be introducing Robin Black, the author of 2010's If I Loved You, I Would Tell You This, a collection of stories published by Random House. We feel incredibly lucky that we've had her here for two in Denver for two years in a row. Robin last year was Lighthouse Writer's first flyby writer, um, a new program. Yeah. When she came to town for that, stories on stage, read one of the stories, and here, Gaining Ground. And then I think they did, did they do Gaining Ground again? Or Last fall, they said, wait a minute, we, you know, we're doing more short stories. We're going to go back to this woman, Robin Black, and do more of her short stories, and they did Immortalizing John Parker. So they love her, and so do we. Uh, Robin's lengthy accomplishments include publishing in the Southern Review, the New York Times Magazine, one story, and she was a, uh, what, what do they call it, a literary debutante last year? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For a debut collection. It's right before my 15th birthday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Georgia Review, Colorado Review, Alaska Quarterly Review, Freight Stories, Indiana Review, The Best Creative Nonfiction. She is the recipient of grants from the Leeway Foundation, McDowell, the Siren Land Conference in Italy, which looks so cool. Um, and, sorry, editorializing. And is also, <laughs> McDowell looks really cool too. Um, and is also the winner of the 2005 Pirate Alley's Faulkner Wisdom Writing Competition in the short story category. Her work has been noticed four times for special mention by the Pushcart Prizes and also deemed notable in the Best American Essays 2008, the Best Non-Required Reading 2009, and Best Required Best American Short Stories 2010. 2008, 2009. That's amazing. She holds degrees from Sarah Lawrence College and the Warren Wilson MFA program for writers. Critics compare her work to Alice Monroe, to Amy Bloom, to Lori Moore, to Miranda July, and yet Robin has a voice all her own. This collection, I brought my heart back, um, was named by Kirkus as an auspicious debut. Its sensitive insights conveyed in elegantly plain prose. Let me just give you a quick example. And then I have some um, personal stuff about how I met Robin, which is sort of an interesting and modern story. In Immortalizing John Parker, there's a story uh, about a woman named Clara who is a portrait painter. Clara is about 70 years old. She's trying to paint a portrait of a man who is dying, but also really disappearing before her eyes. This is his wife's wish is that he be immortalized in a portrait. Clara's married lover has died recently, and with no public way to mourn, she faces her silent subject. He stares at her still, and it is hard not to read his sorrow as a wisdom of a kind in this era of loss, when knowledge and pain seem intrinsically linked. She thinks that maybe here is someone to whom she can speak all these thoughts, explain what she has been trying to do, what has upset her so about her work since George's death, what stillness means, what time itself means, how it rules us, how it flows away, away, how unkind, how dispassionate it can be. 
how in the end, for all we are given, we are all robbed, blind, of everything John Parker understands. She's sure. He won't think her sophomoric or pretentious. He'll recognize her struggles. He'll know that he, that she, like he, is at war. In Robin's work, both through the stories and in her way of telling them, Robin gives us both the darkest hearts of these characters and enough distance from them that we can see her life, even our own lives, as never before. So I hope that you have read or intend to read Robin's story collection, but if you haven't gotten it yet, I want to offer you some advice. When you Google Robin Black, make sure to add author. (laughs) Do you know what's coming? (laughs) Um, So I started following Robin on Twitter, which was the very first way that I heard of her two years ago. And I realized she had a short story coming out collection, and I thought, well, you know, I she seems like a nice person on Twitter. I'll buy her stories. So I bought the short story collection, and they were transformative for me. They were amazing. And I thought, well, I'd like to know more about her. So I Googled Robin Black. This is Robin Black, the guy in the middle. <laughs> he's in a band, and he's a cage fighter. So he is also a multi-talented Robin Black. And today I went back to his website because I thought... I, don't, I ended up back there again. I forgot the author part. And I found an interview with this Robin Black, which I thought was sort of fascinating. So this is our David Foster Wallace moment where I sort of digress, but it's going to maybe link back in in your mind. <laughs> Someone asks this Robin Black, are there any similarities between fronting a rock band and being a cage fighter? And this Robin Black says, you stand up in front of a ton of people, half naked, and try your best to do well. You feel the beauty that is knowing you could fail miserably, and you dig down deep and try to do your best. Performing in a rock band is much easier. Fighting is much more exhilarating. But when you lose, and I lost plenty, fighting is so emotionally painful. How kind of interesting, these Robin Blacks. <laughs> um, I think... <laughs> Um, so I first met Robin on Twitter. Um, I found her book, and I sat down with it one night, and I felt about halfway through reading this collection as though I had special, as though I had stumbled on a special trove of writing, like the girl in a fairy tale who seeks only a way to pass the afternoon in the forest and who instead counters a creature who is magical, alluring, and dangerous. Robin's characters are a blind daughter who sees all that her parents don't in their marriage, a woman coping with the death of her father while her very house seems to threaten her own child, a cancer patient who tries to protect her husband from all that he is losing, a child who tiptoes towards the truth of adults around her. For me, those stories took up the quotidian moments that I know so well, love, loss, death, disappointment, and blew them up bigs so that I could crawl around inside them and see the moments that string together all our lives. Robin gives voice to the human experience, most particularly to the, for those of us who have lived long enough to understand that the deep and complex relationships have a value that the merely joyful can't touch. Robin is my favorite kind of writer. She's the kind of writer who is a person who has suffered, acknowledged loss, sees complexity, and says, this is sort of interesting. I better write this down. (laughs) So we communicated on Twitter when we liked each other. You know, we made some jokes back and forth. And then Andrea emailed and said, we're starting this new series. And this woman named Robin Black is coming to town. And I went, really? When can I say something? So Andrea finally gave me the go ahead. And I said, I get to meet you. You're coming to Denver. (laughs) Um, In true internet stalker fashion. (laughs) 
so when Robin came to Denver last year, I learned that we're about the same age and that Robin began working on this collection about nine or ten years ago. She will tell you that she has spent most of her adult life as a wife and mother to three on Philadelphia's main line. Robin is a housewife and mother in the same way that Emily Dickinson was a woman puttering around in her garden. Robin is the sort of woman who responds to readers on Amazon and thanks them for reading her work. Over the last year, we've had sporadic communication. I applied to and was accepted to the Warren Wilson MFA program and called. She was the second person I called. We've had communication about the MFA, children, love, disappointment, houses, the value of house tequila versus brand, <laughs> and whether if we had to be naked, it would, we would rather be naked in front of a man or a woman. When I was accepted into the Warren Wilson program, I called two people. The first was a man who said, let's talk about your commitment to writing, the transformative aspect of the MFA, and the politics of academic writing. Then I called Robin, and she said, you have to bring your own sheets and towels. (laughs) And in in classic Robin fashion, not only was that really what I needed to hear, because the sheets and towels they give you are like prison issue. <laughs> the other part was she said, you will need the comfort. You will go back to your twin bed in your dorm room, and you will really need it. So to garnethill.com I went and got the velvet comforter and the whole thing. Um, but she was absolutely right, and that's the strength of Robbins, is to be able to know what a person is and needs in life and to reduce it down to, you need sheets and towels, really nice ones, because this is how this will be for you. Um, her book is on the shelf next to my Chekhov short story collection. This is a book to go to for structure and craft if you're a writer as well as humanity. Um, in an interview with Karen Russell, the young woman who wrote uh, Swamplandia and other stories, she's also written uh, St. Lucy's Home for Wolves. Um, here's an interesting interview. I loved this. Karen Russell says, how can we be so wrong in our judgments of those to whom we are closest, our parents, our children? What blinds these characters? In your opinion, what prevents them from truly seeing one another? Here's Robin's answer. I honestly think it's just how we all bungle through life. We make mistakes. We assume we know what's going on, and we don't. Every person carries a vast number of secrets, even people who don't think of themselves as secretive. We withhold from one another as a kindness or to be in control of some situation or because we don't want to violate someone else's confidence or because it's not even theoretically possible to tell someone everything you know. So much of life is conducted in this kind of strange, murky darkness. I think I may be more attuned to that than some people, or I may be naturally drawn to it as an area of narrative potential. But I think it's a condition that exists for us all. What's amazing to me, and continually beautiful, is that we manage ever to connect to one another at all. The stories, for me, the stories in If I Loved You, I Would Tell You This, are the best of what short stories offer. Rich, full lives lived in small moments. Robin's characters struggle in these stories, it's true, but they're also redeemed by their own humanity in the time and space of these stories. Her work affirms that our lives matter, that the sorrows and epiphanies of our days have meaning. Her work limbs the experience of loss, whether it's through death, aging, growing up, or the relinquishment of old fantasies. The stories in If I Loved You are old. What you will hear tonight is new, the first chapter of Robin's novel. How lucky we are. (laughs) 
I took notes while she was talking, and I now, I now, I'm not going to read at all. I'm just going to respond to it. It says here, you know, how interesting the age at which it becomes if you had to be naked in front of someone instead of like if you got to be. And, um, but, um, I, I want to say before I launch into anything, I have so many thank yous. It's going to be like the Oscars here. But first, thank you so much to Emily for that, which was itself an extraordinarily beautifully crafted piece of writing. And I, um, you know, if I could pretend it wasn't about me, I could really enjoy it. Um, and, and I have to say this. Um, I'll I'll intersperse the thank yous with other ADD things from her speech. Um, The rocker, the glam rocker, Robin Black, who, much to my children's amusement for many years, went by the name Robin fucking Black. Um, I ran across, while engaged in the 21st century activity of Googling myself, I uh, ran across an interview in which he talked about me, and somebody said to him, like, they're all Canadian. Someone was like, hey, mate, I thought I was following you on Twitter. It was this writer chick. <laughs> and, and, and he wrote back, yeah, there's some author, not my cup of tea. <laughs> and I, I thought that was great. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an amazing thing in anybody's life to have a home of any kind, and I have a home at home, but I have also had the incredible treat of having a home here. Um, that's, I tell people I'm going to Denver, I'm going to this place called Lighthouse, you know, I'm going to the Lighthouse, and... Um, and they look at me and they go, oh, you know, business, travel, more. And I go, no, 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 no. This one's different. This is really different. Um, these people have really given me something. And so I, I told Andrea when I drove up and I saw the new building, I actually started to get teary because what you all do is so beautiful and has been done so extraordinarily well. And the spirit of this place is so amazing and it's an incredible privilege to me to have been here two years in a row. So thank you, everybody, for that. Uh, I am going to read from, I'm actually, like, while I'm doing this, I'm just to show you how crazy I am. Somebody very kindly stapled my pages together. I'm undoing them so I can flip them. Um, just so you don't think I'm entirely insane, there's a reason I'm, like, standing here like this. Um, I... Um, I'm reading from the beginning of my novel, which is not yet finished, in part because it's good for me to hear it, in part because I want to do it because I think people who share new material are brave, and you all are brave with each other, and people have been brave with me this week, my amazing students this week, and so I want to do the brave thing. And also um, because I don't know how many of you have kids who've gone off to college, but When my oldest child went to college in the year going up to it, I thought to myself, there aren't enough therapists in Pennsylvania to get me through the experience of my daughter going to college. And then the first time she came home, I thought, there's not enough room in this house for both of us. And and I feel sort of that way about my short stories now. 
It's when I go to read from them, they're sort of like my daughter coming home from college. It's like, you know, oh, you again? What do you want? So, so although, you know, really, I do love her. Um, so um, I won't tell you the title of the novel because it's only a working title, and my own opinion is that the definition of a working title is a title that doesn't work. So um, we don't have a title yet. I'm going to read the first chapter and then a couple pages into the second. Um, so, chapter one. One second. Get myself ready here. Now it'll be good, better. Okay. <laughs> chapter one. In the days leading up to Owen's death, he would go to Allison's house nearly every afternoon. I would watch him trudge over the small, sometimes snowy hill between our two properties, half the time away from me, half the time toward me, and I would wonder what he thought about as he went, wonder, too, if Allison watched him from a window of her own, and whether the expression she saw on his face as he approached was very different from the one I saw as he came home. In the weeks that followed his death, I would stare out the same window, the one in our living room nearest the fireplace, for as much as an hour at a time, maybe sometimes longer than that. There was a huge blizzard on the day after his funeral. I watched as nearly three feet of snow crashed to the ground, staying all through January, then most of February, picking up a few more inches now and then, drifting against anything in its way, flattening the landscape so the hill wasn't quite so distinct anymore and the trees all looked shorter, their trunks buried deep. It was, I imagine, very beautiful. But imagining and remembering are not quite the same thing. I don't remember thinking it was anything but eerie at the time. Owen wasn't buried I had known practically since the day we met that he wanted to be cremated. We'd had the sort of courtship, though the word would have seemed old-fashioned to us both, that included a lot of talk about the meaning of life, the prospect of death. We were young, very young, and undoubtedly neither of us believed, not really, that we would ever die, which made that sort of discussion often late at night, often just after sex, exhilarating. There was a beauty to be found in the transitory nature of existence, we would say. There was liberation in the acceptance of mortality. Religion was for fools. Religion, along with marriage ceremonies, Thanksgiving dinners, station wagons, procreation, and so on. Burial was a perverse notion, if you really thought about it, without the assumptions of the culture blinding you. All those dead bodies taking up all that land a peculiar fetishistic custom. We were to be a cremation couple. It was established early on, except that we were never going to die. I thought about so many things during those first snowy weeks, including the fact that I, too, was mortal, that I, too, would disappear one day, leaving behind such things as panes of glass through which other people could gaze and cold that they would feel, snow that had to be shoveled, not just contemplated, practical issues for which I would no longer be a help or a hindrance, relationships abandoned like unfinished thoughts. 
It isn't that no one close to me had ever died before. I was 52 years old. My mother was gone, one of my sisters. My father was wandering his solitary, demented way toward a graceless, profoundly unjust kind of death. But Owen was Owen. Owen was me. I was Owen. Anger and all, betrayals and all. Owen would walk into a room, and I might well want to kill him, so to speak. But at the same time, for much of my life, I couldn't really have told you where I left off and he began. And then the bastard died, leaving me standing at a window, staring into a landscape as though, well, as though he might just reappear one day, of course. I was certain about cremation, but in fact, a lot of our other opinions had softened over the years. That is what happens. There was, in fact, a marriage ceremony eventually. There were attempts to procreate. We even bought a minivan, though it was for hauling my paintings, not children. We never did get religion, either of us, but we started to value the idea of ritual. So no celebration of Thanksgiving with its intimation of smallpox-infected blankets and European domination. But on the second Saturday of every April, we threw a big party, invited old friends out to the country, cooked an insane amount of food, drank too much, and talked appreciatively of pagan celebrations of spring. We also, back when we were city dwellers, went through a phase of lighting candles every Wednesday night. Ain't nobody Sabbath but our own, Owen sang the first time that we did. So we played Billie Holiday every Wednesday after that. But softened isn't really the right word. Our opinions didn't soften. More accurately, we reacted to life. And we reacted time and again to threats to us, to us being us. Why did we finally get married? Because I had broken the promise that we had never made. Owen forgave me, or anyway, we moved forward, but we did it with a vow this time. Why did we try to have children? Because there was a period in there when the possibility, absurd five years before, that we might be a little bored with each other crept into our thoughts. Our fabric seemed to be wearing thin, And why this desire for ritual? To anchor us. I will be here the second Saturday of every April. I will be here every Wednesday night. We never saw it that way, of course. I saw it that way later on. That's what happens when one of you dies. The clock stops. The story ends. You can make some sense of it all, begin to see patterns, begin to understand. Maybe you can only begin to understand Maybe the patterns are only the ones that you impose, but the thing takes on a different shape. It takes on a shape. Or, as one of my teachers used to say, you cannot see a landscape you are in. But you do begin to see it when you step away. This is me, just before my first glimpse of Allison. I am standing, hands on hips, staring at a patch of basil that has gone to seed, peeved at myself for having once again planted so much and once again failed to harvest it at the right time. It is one of those obscenely hot days when you walk outside and think there's been some kind of terrible mistake because weather can't really be meant to be this oppressive. 
My hair, long and still close to entirely black, is tightly braided, pulled off my neck, clipped straight on the back of my head, so if the sun weren't too high for shadows, mine would look like I had feathers sticking up. And I am wearing just a bra and shorts. My body at 52 is tan from gardening, mowing, walking, and I am strong, stronger than I ever was before I became a country dweller. My face, my face is broad, my Russian forebears lending me their wide, prominent cheekbones, their heavy, square jaws, and my eyes, which are dark blue, are bluer still under thick, black brows. If I am beautiful, I am not classically so, but at 52, I think I am beautiful, more than I ever did at 20, at 30. By this time, I mind mirrors less. If I am honest, I will say I sometimes seek them out. I look at my face, at my body, with a kind of clinical detachment into which a strand of admiration inserts itself. I always wanted to be powerful. In this decade, finally, I look powerful. I feel powerful. And I feel alone. Standing there in front of the house, knowing the mail has already arrived so there won't be anyone near again for another 24 hours, I am alone in a way that is familiar to me by this day, but that I never experienced until six years before when we moved to this otherworldly place. It is a kind of solitude that continues even when Owen is standing beside me. It is a solitude that includes him. We are apart from the rest of the world. We are invisible to it. We have become by this time a single being, a being that argues with itself from time to time as a knee may ache, as a tired back may refuse to cooperate. So you say, oh, for God's sake, could you stop being so difficult? But you are saying it to a part of yourself. While I am peering down at herbs, Owen is in the barn writing or trying to. For months now, he has been that weary back that won't cooperate. He imagines that his poetry has wandered to a distant acre of our universe, curled up and died. He still spends days inside the barn, but he comes out looking grieved. I feel this ache all the time, though my own work is going well, and it is probably this that has made me wander out into the garden, into the day, so horribly hot. I am restless for him. I am restless as part of him. The basil I am eyeing with such irritation is rampant. The air smells of it and of lavender. Owen and I are enthusiastic, ignorant gardeners. We are inadequately attentive. We are perpetually amazed. We are innocents to nature, stupefied by its every trick. Even as I am annoyed with myself for letting the basil go to seed, I am also in awe of it magic, these beings that continue to grow, that know what to do next and next and next. Hello? I am not alone. First, a British voice, then a small woman in a violet sundress with a mop of gray curls. Alison Hemmings, she says, her hand outstretched long before I might reach it. I've just rented the house across the way. I'm so sorry if I'm here at a bad time. A smiling face, round cheeks, a firm grip, startling, light eyes. It has been years since anyone lived in the house next door. I have almost stopped thinking of it as having an interior. It has become only a shabbily beautiful facade in our view. 
Gus Edelman, I say. Augusta, really, but Gus, welcome. My voice is riddled with question marks, and then I remember that I'm only in a bra. (laughs) Folded in among the thoughts of a neighbor is the thought that the bra, which is purple, may pass for a bathing suit. Then the thought that it serves her right barging in, though she hasn't really barged in. Then the thought that it's too late to say anything about my bra. We have absorbed the fact of it already. We have moved on. (laughs) It's so beautiful here, isn't it, she says. Yes, it is, I say. Can I help you out in some way? It isn't quite right, I know. I sound like a salesperson at the end of the day hurrying to close the store. She tells me that she is leasing the Cutler's place at least until September, she says, maybe beyond, depending on how things go. I hadn't realized they were renting it out, I say. The owners, a young couple who inherited the home from a distant family, had only ever visited on occasional weekends and hadn't come at all since taking jobs halfway across the country three years before. You haven't seen the advert, she asks, because you are in it, you, and is it your husband? I shake my head, frowning. I had no idea. On one of those rental sites, one of the features is the couple who lives next door, the writer, the painter. Oh, how strange. They never mentioned. She smiles. I promise not to be a pest, but it did make the setting more appealing. I'm actually a painter, too, and somehow the notion of a creative enclave. Plus, I figured if the ad mentioned you, you probably weren't axe murderers. Not recently, I say. Not me, anyway. As we speak, I decide she's a few years younger than I, despite the gray hair. We look at one another a bit more awkward until she says she should be getting back to her unpacking. I tell her, please, to let us know if we can help her settle in, but I don't say it with much enthusiasm, and as she steps away, I lean down to pick some of the leggy basil as though she has caught me in the middle of an important, pressing task. Many thanks, she calls back, so good to meet. When I'm sure she's gone, I straighten up my hands full of stems, I look toward the barn and think of going there. A new neighbor is big news, but then I decide it can wait. Owen needs to be left alone to push the rock back up the hill, and I need to get back to work. So instead of turning left, I turn right and go inside. We'd moved into the farmhouse six years before that day, after Owen's father died, surprising us by leaving a small fortune. Very small, but still a fortune to us. It was enough money that we could think hard about what changes we wanted to make in our lives, enough money that we could afford to make changes without thinking too hard. For the first time in forever, we had a safety net. We'd always talked about living in the country in a maybe-one-day kind of way, but once it was possible, we started to get serious, checking real estate online, driving out into the country to explore houses that we knew within seconds we would never want to own. Then we found the farmhouse, and as buyers, we were sold right away. Built in 1919, it was exactly the kind of lovely we'd been looking for. We first saw it on a breezy day in May when the land shimmered with every leaf imaginable from ground to sky. I thought we'd stumbled onto the hidden spot in which the universe tests out its most exquisite shades of green. 
The pond, perfectly round, had a fairy tale look, frog princes poised to set themselves on its edge. I have fallen in love very few times in my life, and once was with these nine acres, this home on that day. There seemed to be all the right spaces, too. Owen could write in the barn once we ran electricity out there, and I could set up a studio in the enclosed porch with its windows on three sides. There was work to do, of course. The kitchen was a horror show. The roof was a joke, like the old dribble glasses designed to leak. But the house itself was dirt cheap, and we had more than enough money to fix it up. Our friends back in Philadelphia, incurably urban, thought we were mad, and we both rather enjoyed that part. In our crowd, it had become hard to latch onto any eccentricity no one else had yet claimed. Overnight, we had become oddballs, objects of affectionate eye-rolling and shaking heads. They'll be back in a week. We had set ourselves apart from the crowd. And in some other sense, some entirely literal sense, that was exactly what we needed to do. Neither of us acknowledged that our move had anything to do with my infidelity four years before. It had been two years then since our city hall ceremony, the ritual that was to have been the punctuation mark ending to the whole episode. But that didn't turn out to mean the betrayal wasn't a lingering presence in our lives, a taunting little goblin in the shadows daring us to call him out. For Owen, I knew there were reminders everywhere. When I'd confessed to him, I had confessed fully, with all the misguided passion of one who believes that she is cleansing herself and forgets that she may be staining the listener. Owen became the man who knew too much. He carried in his head a map of meeting places, of locations where we might run into Bill. He could envision us slipping into this dim cafe, slipping out a few minutes apart from this hotel. He knew how to walk from our home to Bill's. He knew where Bill's law office was. I always half believed that Owen would have an affair one day himself to restore balance of a kind. In certain moods, dark moods, I even believed that he had the right, though the thought of it was hideous to me. Sexual jealousy, emotional jealousy. I couldn't bear the prospect of going through what he had gone through, what I had put him through. But a part of me believed that it was only fair. A part of me thought maybe it would set us right again. A couple of times I almost convinced myself it had happened. There was a student of his whose name seemed to come up too often, Victoria Feldman. And a little later there was a young woman, a girl really, who worked at a nearby coffee shop. I thought I could catch a little atmospheric hum around each of them. I had my hunches. But then, for whatever reasons, I changed my mind. Maybe he said Victoria Feldman was tedious, a word I knew he wouldn't use about a woman he was taking to bed, not even to cover something up. Maybe I looked a little more closely at the coffee shop girl and realized he would be appalled by her age, closer to 16 than I had thought. I don't remember the details of how my mind first entangled, then disentangled him from these non-existent liaisons, but the point is that I was always on alert. When I was a teenager, long before any of this, my sisters and I used to play a game just between ourselves that consisted solely of muttering under our breath, there's a nice little friend for you, whenever we saw a boy. 
Most of the time it was said sarcastically, there's a nice little friend for you, just as the most appalling skinhead cousin of the kid hosting the party walks in. Every once in a while, though, it was said appreciatively, there's a nice little friend for you. No, seriously, by the door. We were always on the lookout. All teenagers are, I suppose. We were human periscopes, scanning, scanning. And the fact that there were three of us close in age meant there was never a time when at least one pair of eyes wasn't engaged. The three years between my affair and our move to the country were a bit like that. Is this her? Is this possible? There's a nice little friend for you. I hope he doesn't think so. I hope he doesn't see her. I hope he does. I hope he never tells me. I hope he does. It was never far from my mind. We could move out to the country now, you know. As we always told the story, the idea came upon us both at once as though he had acted on it without either of us having to speak the words aloud. But in fact, I was the one who said it, sitting in a diner, dawdling over late-night pie and coffee, trying to comprehend the degree to which our circumstances had changed with this newly copious bank account. We could move to the country now, you know. This is Owen on the day we moved in. He is pacing off the distance between the kitchen door of the house and the great doorway of the barn. Well over six feet tall, slender to the point of being skinny, as he places one heel to the front of the other foot's toes, and again and again, he looks single-legged, and as though he will blow over with just a mild gust of wind. It is autumn, mid-October, and the greens of our first encounter with this land have dressed up in fancy costume, orange, scarlet, yellow, to welcome us. It is almost too much to take in, all the beauty. And this is why Owen is doing what he is doing, measuring this line, which there is no reason to measure, because this is what Owen does when he is overwhelmed. Watching from what is to be my studio, I know he doesn't really need or even want to know how many lengths of his own feet it is from one building to the other, except that it is a start. In this hurricane of incomprehensible loveliness, he begins with the ground, with his own feet on that ground. He begins with a count. Standing there, I remember how he first loved me physically, what those earliest sexual moments were like when he counted the freckles on my belly, when he stretched his hand across my breasts, nipple to nipple, measuring my body with his own, so earnest, so strangely in his head, yet defined by the act of knowing me all at once. It felt like a form of devotion I had never imagined as he committed my body to his memory and so committed himself to me. I could never match it, I was sure. When he reaches the barn, his form relaxes. He turns and walks briskly, loosely back to the house. He is still boyish at 48. He is that boy with the just too long hair that falls into his face, wearing the sweater he must have borrowed from his dad. His limbs still seem as though he'll grow into them with time. As he nears, I see the earnestness on his face. He has solved a problem. He'll move on now to the next one, testing the depth of the pond or counting the steps to the basement. This, for him, is moving in, as for me, painting walls and hanging pictures is. 
He is all about acquiring knowledge. I am all about recasting a thing into what I want it to be. These are the sorts of things you see when you step away. It doesn't mean you're right. It just means it's what you see. The basil I picked for Allison's benefit ended up on our kitchen table in a mason jar where it looked more than a little sad, and I went back into my studio, back to work. It is typical of productive artistic periods for me that they have their origins in something beyond my control. That's true of the bad times, too, of course, which is the hell of it, as Owen was daily experiencing. My work the summer Allison arrived had its origins in a bathroom renovation we had finally gotten around to back in March, of all things. Our third-floor bathroom was a wreck. It had never been used much except for the annual April celebration, and its rundown grottiness had never been a priority. But that winter, the tiles had started popping off the walls, and somehow that made the sagging ceiling intolerable. We took a few bids, all of which were low. Nobody had enough work. Everyone was cutting their profits. They all seemed perfectly able, so we went with the man who seemed most amiable, and before a week had passed, he had a crew there doing demolition. I spent an irritated morning listening to the bangs and shattering to the too loud blaring radio, and then around noon I went up to ask if they needed anything for their lunch, and something caught my eye, a pile of obviously old newspapers twisted and crumpled now in my hall. What are those? From when the house was built, the contractor, Keith, told me, people used to use those to insulate back in the day. The first thing I did was iron them. Owen laughed because in all the years we've been together, neither of us had ever ironed anything. The iron had come with the house, as had any number of such odds and ends. It took me a long time. It took me far longer than it had to because I got caught in watching the way the images and the words came clear. The crumples themselves were a kind of blurred focus that I could manipulate. And there was also, inevitably, a sensation of moving backwards in time, not only because the papers were old, but because the act of crumpling a newspaper is a strictly forward-moving act. It isn't something one normally does, then undoes. The ironing process became all about restoration for me, restoration, clarity, and then also war. What was being restored? World War I. Crumpled newspapers with body counts, with surges of hope documented, defeats, deaths, and more deaths, homecomings, and more deaths. I recrumpled some just to get the feel of doing that, just the act of bringing the names of the slaughtered into focus and then obscuring them again, then back into focus. I began to jot notes about permanence and impermanence, about news, facts, conduits of facts versus facts themselves. I began to imagine the newspapers in other forms, things that could not be crumpled, chiseled in stone, etched into metal. I took one and burned it in a small copper bowl I had and saved the ashes. I stopped thinking sensibly, which is how I knew I had stumbled into my next project. Over a period of days, I took pictures of the bathroom, of the space between the walls where the papers had been entombed. I thought about the papers having been used for warmth and of the heat of the iron bringing them back, 
I tried to make something of that. I thought of the tiles popping off the wall, of the pressures exerted by the words and images. I tried carrying a single sheet in my pocket for a day, the face of a boy home, wounded from the war. What did it mean to have him at my hip? I pictured the two walls of denim like the plaster walls in which the papers had been stuffed. This is how art is made. This is how I have always made art. Passive to the flow, active in it too, hanging on for dear life, sleepless, in heat. There are moments in a creative life when you understand why you do it. Those moments might last a few seconds or maybe for some people years, but whatever the actual time that passes, they still feel like a single moment, fragile in the way a moment is, liable to be shattered by a breath, set apart from other passing time, distinct. But then it changes. And what seemed unimaginably exhilarating gets bogged down even when a project is going well. It is a gradual, inevitable process through which your right to be passive diminishes. What the ether has given you now, in fact, belongs to you. And then it is work. Then it is hard. By the time Allison arrived, I had moved into that second stage, the one that requires effort and also faith. And as I tried to concentrate that day, I kept flashing back to the encounter in the garden. Hello. Scattered on the floor on my work tables were the faces of boys who had died, demolished. I told myself I should be ashamed to feel irritated by something as petty as a neighbor moving in, a renter who would be there for some limited time. I made a few sketches, just of faces, then of figures in a landscape, the fields of Flanders as I imagined them, a placeholder until I did some research, I then assumed. The eastern wall of my studio faces the pond. The western faces our front lawn. If you stand at the corner where west meets north, you can see scraps and pieces of Allison's property through the trees. And I knew as I moved around my studio that she was there, that I might see her carrying boxes and who knows what if I looked. I also knew that if I looked, I wouldn't work. So instead, I looked at the yellow newsprint eyes all around me. And I thought about the house, my house, that had silently borne the weight of these young lost faces for all these years. Let me stop there. Thank you all for listening. Um, I, I want to talk take questions? Are we doing that? If anyone has any questions for me. But before I do that, I just want to remember to say this endurance thing tomorrow night. Stephen Schwartz, who's going to be one of the people participating, um, was my first supervisor in graduate school and remains the best teacher I've ever had, only because I've never taken classes here, of course. <laughs> and um, and. I will be there, not even just because he's a mentor and close friend, but because I want to hear what he has to say. And I've been listening to the man for 10 years. So this is something worth going to listen to. So um, does anyone have any questions? I've told the people in my class that if no one else does, I'll make them talk. Yes. Is this biographical? Um, I have... I have... I have 
I mean, I've, I've done some visual art that, I mean, I've actually shown stuff. So I have a little bit of experience with that. Um, the rest of the story has nothing to do with me, except that we did find newspaper in the wall of a bathroom when we were doing a renovation. And so I got the idea for it because if I were a full-time visual artist, I would definitely have done something with them. So, I mean, I just thought it was amazing. And I'll tell you an amazing story. For a while, I thought I was going to do, in the book, she was going to work in encaustics, which is wax art. And so I went to take a class in encaustics, and I already knew all this about the newspapers in the book, and I just thought, well, I should know a little bit about encaustic art to do this. And I went to the studio, and I met this woman, and she said, oh, I don't do encaustics anymore because we renovated our house, and I found this metallic material in the insulation, and I've started doing all my art based on that. (laughs) And I just thought, this is, life is so weird. (laughs) So... That's the name of my autobiography. Life is so weird. <laughs> Any other? Anyone? Don't be shy. I will start calling on people. Can I ask a, a craft question? Yeah, please. Um, Owen's death seems to be in a very unusual place. The first sentence? Mm-hmm. The first sentence. Okay. So here's the deal with that from a craft perspective. I am somebody who does not write plot-heavy fiction. Um, I'm not a page-turner kind of writer. In short stories, it's not that hard to get away with that. For a novel, it's more difficult. So for me, for a long time, and it's taken me a long time to be writing the novel I mean to be writing. There is, in fact, a 300-pager thrown out and a 70-pager thrown out. One of the questions that difficulties I had in writing a novel is how do you get narrative tension if you're not somebody who creates those kinds of plots so what I've tried to do here is create a book in which there is a question hanging over the book the whole time but it isn't what's going to happen it's how does this thing happen so that's really why it's front-loaded, is to give the book a different kind of narrative drive. Yes, ma'am. Um, okay. Can I ask two questions? <laughs> you, as far, I think you can probably ask six, because okay. I'm not seeing a lot of hands. Um, well, one is, if, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the process of going from short stories to a novel. Um, and the second one is, when you walk away to a certain degree from that sort of plot-driven novel, um, her voice is uh, it's, it's, it's sort of consciousness it's interiority um, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this how much control do you impose on that and how much because it, it feels like um, you know it, it feels like someone's thinking process only prettier um, and I guess what I'm asking is the generative process versus the revision process and creating a voice like that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm, that's mm-hmm. what I'm fumbling around. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think partly you're saying it's a spoken voice, but it's also a literary voice. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a hybrid. And I actually think that that is less evident when you're just reading it on the page. Like, I'm very conscious when I read it out loud that it sounds a little too literary. 
for me, like it's, it doesn't really quite sound like someone talking except one of my brothers, but that's another story. <laughs> and, um, and I think, you know, on the page, I think that's smoothed out a little bit because you're not hearing someone articulate well-turned, I hope, phrases. Um, but, and I don't remember your first question. Oh, oh the short story novel. Well, let me just say a little bit more about the voice. Um, in a million years, as I've told my students here, it would not have occurred to me that I would write a first-person novel. And then I read last year a book called The Forgotten Waltz by Anne Enright, which I didn't love. But what I did love was what a first-person voice could do. And what really attracted me to it is, again, because I'm not exactly a chronologically linear writer, So I do, meaning I don't want to do, and then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. To do that in third person, you have to get very tricky with the narrative, and you have to figure out all these ways of doing things out of order and backstory. To do it in first person... You just have to think like a human being because we don't tell stories in a linear manner. We say, you know, this is what my husband was like on this day. So then I got back in the kitchen and I did this, and it reminds me I used to have an uncle who, you know, and and that's actually, I realized this first person voice, which I'd always thought, oh, I'll never write a first person novel because the voice is too simple. Like, I don't want to be a simpleton. it actually is a. It can actually be much more layered, but but it took reading a book that had done that. And again, as I say, it wasn't a book I loved, but I loved what she did with the voice. Um, going from a short story to writing a novel was really difficult for me. It's it's. I mean, this one I say was only because I know this novel's actually going to be finished, and I feel comfortable about that. But years and years and years and years of misery over the issue and the way I mean from the emotional perspective the way I've always described it is it's like you you live really happily by yourself in a studio apartment and then you know some old relative dies and leaves you a mansion and you have to live there and it's like well theoretically it's nice to have all this space but I don't want it and that's sort of how I felt about a novel it's like you know well theoretically it should be great to get to go on and on and on and on but I don't want to go on and on and on. I like compression. I like the little puzzle of creating a universe in 36 pages, which seems to be the page count that I come out at most often. And um, so it was difficult for me to understand how to make the transition. And I think what actually helped me was in part finding this voice that I could relate to, but also realizing that a novel could be a much smaller thing than I thought it had to be. So when this is done, it will really be a 220-page short story. <laughs> and, and, there's, and that's actually, it's a meaningful thing. You know, I mean, there aren't many, many plots. It, isn't, it, it has a sense of compression. I've limited the number of people. They're in a geographical location. They're isolated from the world. You know, yes, they live in a, t- in a universe in which World War I took place, but even World War I is absorbed into being one character's experience of understanding historical loss and time and, and those things. So in a sense, it really was like cutting the branches back and saying, okay, how do you write a short story that's longer? 
not how do you write a novel. Anybody else? Yes. So the you kind of you have this gust and you, at the beginning and you think this is the story this one's great and then one day you wake up and you think no not not so much yeah um, I think that there's a part of my skull that is really helpfully thick about that because honestly in terms of process what I do and that happens to me a lot. And I would say I have, by this time, at least 75 unfinished stories on various hard drives in places, not to mention three or four novels. So um, I'm somebody who writes, probably for every word I end up saving, I write eight others. I mean, I I really do think I throw out 70 to 90% of what I write. And a lot of times it's for that reason. So... In the long run, the emotional way I deal with it is to know, and, and, I, and this is just true, that every word I keep exists because of all the words I wrote before it. So you can't get to the finished product without the process, even if the process involves a lot of throwing out. And the other thing is, um, I, I know myself at this point, Um, I'm not someone who needs to write every day or should write every day. When I reach a bad point in a project, I'm really happy to just say, okay, I'm going to go do something else for two weeks. I'm also happy to say, I'm going to start a different project. I I, I, I try to be as little attached to what I've written as I possibly can be. And I think that that's just what works for me. So if I find myself at a brick wall with a, with a story, I'll walk away from it and just say, okay, that one's done. I'm going to something else. And I know it's counter to a lot of advice that a lot of other people give, which is, you know, get your fanny in the chair and stick to it and keep going. And that's why it isn't advice. It's really just a description of what I do. Because I think the, the ultimately the advice is to figure out what works for you and to kind of say, you know, does it help me to put something away for two weeks? Does it help me to go back a page from where I felt like I lost it and start over again? Does it help me to sit down and have a conversation with somebody about what attracted me to it in the first place? Does it help me to go read somebody else's short stories to jog my memory? Does it help me to tell the story backwards? I mean, there are a lot of tricks you can use to find your way back into something. For me, after years of doing this, the only thing that helps is walking away. And and sometimes I go back to the stories, and sometimes I just have to say, oh, that was part of my path to the next thing. I think it's a disappointing answer. <laughs> because because it's, you know, because it, there's this element of, of accepting defeat. But I really think in writing that if you if you feel too precious about what you put on the page, it, it holds you back. I think you have to be able to see that your path forward does not necessarily mean dragging all the pages with you. 
you know, and, and the point is for you as a writer to keep moving forward, not necessarily to bring each piece along on the journey. I yell at my husband. <laughs> so that's that's probably that's probably not what you meant. So it's just what tell me what pre at which like at what Well you read character dossiers or Oh, oh I see what you mean, like the the prep the prep stuff. Um I I ha- I don't. I really don't. I I actually envy people who do that. Um, I don't really have a pre-writing thing. I start writing, and the way I write, the best description I can give is it's like somebody walking through the woods with a lantern, like looking for a door. I mean, it's really like I write myself through it. Like I go, oh. You know, she's going to do this. No, she's not. She's going to do that. She's going to do that. You know, oh, she's tall. No, she's short. She's, and and so I just don't have the kind of mind that can construct people outside the context of the story. And I also think that um, for me, and this a little bit goes to the question about kind of staying emotionally connected to the work. One of the ways I can do that is by not knowing too much about it. I actually make a kind of willful effort to keep myself a little ignorant about the work so that I'm always surprised by it, so that I always have a somewhat naive stance toward my own creative output, which isn't like, you know, oh, yes, I achieved the thing I set out to achieve, but is more like, oh, wow, look what they did oh, wow, look who she turned out to be. So I have a kind of gee whiz attitude toward the work, which which it runs counter to outlines and those kinds of things. But, you know, I will once again just say, I think the trick is for everyone to find what works for them. I'm, as my poor class has now heard too many times this week, I am so anti-rules in writing and so anti the idea that, you know, here's how you must write your first novel and here's how many hours a day you must put in. If I sat down at a keyboard every day and tried to write, I wouldn't write. I mean, it's that simple. I wouldn't be a writer. I wouldn't have a book. And partly that's because I know that a lot of my writing goes on while I'm, you know, now now's the part my husband would laugh at, doing the dishes, <laughs> which I don't actually do. But, you know, this sort of as a, as a metaphor. <laughs> yes. Ah. There are plenty of uh, writers, you know, there are a number of writers, uh, fiction writers, who have either written no novels, like our Grace Kelly and our own Sarah Lawrence. Yes. And then there was, you know, like Alice Monroe has written a couple novels, but it's definitely no I can tell you why she wrote those novels, and it's, um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there is the commercial reality. And, and actually, the story 
My, the story behind my two-book deal, which involves selling a short story collection and a novel, which is the commercial reality that's dictating this, is actually not a story of me writing a novel because of a contract. Um, it goes a little bit more to what I was saying about throwing away my own work. When I uh, sold my story collection, which was then 90% complete, I had also written a novel, which I sold at the same time to Random House and various foreign publishers. So I had two books. I sold two books. Two years later, the story collection came out. And I had this moment where I realized that when you publish your work, people read it. (laughs) As I say, I like to keep myself naive. And, um, And I felt with the stories that you know, I, you get the occasional, like my second Amazon review, the title was Blech, you know, and, and so you have this reality hit you. Like, there are people who are going to hate my work. I, you know, not everyone is my mom. And, and, and I felt kind of bulletproof with the stories because I knew they were my best work. So I knew that People could write whatever they wanted, and I would never have a moment where I said, damn it, I should have taken another eight years to write these stories. That I knew those stories are as good a book as I could write up to September 2009, which is when the last story was written. And I knew it wasn't true of the novel I had sold. So I had to go to my editors and say... You can't publish that book because it's never going to be good enough. Please, please, please don't fire me. <laughs> and, and I was just really lucky because they said, okay, go write the best novel you can write. But that's how I ended up having to write a novel, is that I actually had written a novel. The reality, that's my private story of doing this. And, and I had spent about four years on that book. And that's why I need to be very zen about the work that doesn't get published because I have to say, let's assume I love this book when it's done or feel at least that it's my best work. I couldn't have written it without writing that other book. I couldn't write this book without writing that book. Painful, but true. Um, the, the, the shorter answer is that... Um, Large presses do not buy story collections without a novel, period. I mean, there are some exceptions in the history of the universe, but in the last five years, you'd be hard-pressed to find any. So you'll find a lot of people who consider themselves to be short story writers faced with this question, which is, well, do you want to get your book published and write a novel, or do you want to not get your book published? So it's a, it's a commercial pressure. Um, if I don't end up writing a novel I love or end up loving writing novels, I will never write another novel. And, and I may or may not ever have another published book. But that's it. It's, a, it's really a commercial reality. And, you know, Grace Paley lived in a different age, unfortunately, you know, in, in publishing eras.
Some people are very lucky. You know, I mean, as I say, I, I'm sure that there are, there are exceptions, but in terms of statistical realities for most people, that's the reality. That that the novels, and it, and it has to do with what what books sell. Novels are what publishers like to publish. Publishing your story collection is what they are willing to do for you in order for you to write a novel. So... That's that's sort of the way the way it is, unfortunately. Y'all, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but our time together as a group. <laughs> but Robin will be here signing books, right? And she's going to be around. You're going to get to see her. She's coming tomorrow night. You all are going to come tomorrow night, right? Yes. And so it's not goodbye. Really it's see you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.